Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 1st, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Mayday, mayday. Today, UCI political science professor Baburio returns to carefully examine the tea leaves missed and newly served with the peace talks on the Korean Peninsula. Nice to tap into the local brain trust to cover what's not already been said. In the second segment, Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly, returns for his ritual pre-primary election visit to present all that we voters are not even thinking about, including how much postage you need on your fatter absentee ballot and the cybersecurity of our election infrastructure. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. With some fast-breaking developments, the U.S.-South Korea-North Korea relations, we're fortunate to have back Robert Uryu, professor of political science at UCI, specializing in international relations and international political economy with expertise in East Asia and an emphasis on American foreign policy toward the region. His current research is on how Japan, Korea, and China are making efforts to incorporate hydrogen into their renewable energy mix. Bob also focuses on the rise, fall, and revival of the approach known as the East Asian model, how these policies were developed, and tracks their trends throughout East Asia. Really, really important to watch. His publications include Clinton and Japan, the impact of revisionist ideas on U.S.-Japan trade relations, published by Oxford University Press, Troubled Industries Confronting Economic Change in Japan, published by Cornell University Press. So in 1996 to 97, he was a director of Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. He was involved in, make, in policymaking toward all specs of U.S.-Japan relations. Bob was a visiting foreign scholar at Kyoto. University, the University of Tokyo, the International Christian University of Tokyo, and Japan's Ministry of International Trade and Industry. Prior to coming to UCI, he was on the Columbia University faculty. He completed his BA in International Relations and Japanese from UC Davis, his master's and his master's in philosophy and master's arts from Columbia's political science department, a master's of international affairs, and, and his PhD in political science from Columbia University. Bob has lived in Japan for six years and speaks and reads Japanese. He returns to join me in studio, bringing nuanced examination to the latest developments on the Korean Peninsula. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Bob Uryu. Thank you, Claudia. Nice to be back. Well, it, you're the one. First, Bob, what, given what's recently unfolding between what are the better terms to apply between the North and South Korea? And what, what are the terms that we use in the, for the geographic sense? I mean, I've called the, North or the, the Korean Peninsula because I don't know how sort of fluid we're, we're looking at lines that were drawn since 1953, and, and it's Korea, but it's the Korean Peninsula. What, what terms might we be using by now? You know, it, it's sort of interesting you ask that yeah. because so many things seem to be changing. And yet, so many things, I think, are still remaining continuous. And so, I don't think we've really changed our terminology yet. We're talking about the Korean Peninsula. Um, it's still two entities, North Korea, South Korea. So, that really hasn't changed. The question is how they're going to be dealing with each other in terms of the tone of their relationship. And, of course, what they're going to do about the peace treaty and denuclearization. But they're still two entities. They're not really talking about reunification seriously at all. So I'm not sure that's the hardware the versus the so the software is what's sort of a maybe that that's changing a little bit. The hardware hasn't changed one bit since the 50s. Yes, that, I the, think the, the, the war is, is still going. That has not been concluded. Absolutely. Maybe that's a good way to put it. The software seems to be changing in terms of the tone of the talks that we had over the that they had over the weekend, but I think there's still a lot of reason to be skeptical that things really have changed. But there is now the possibility of a new and much sort of better 
future coming up. In other words, when I came here in December, if you recall, right oh. that was at a time when people were worried about actual military conflict. And, you know, the shift, the, the tone has changed so dramatically since, uh, since actually Pyeongchang, the February Olympics, uh, and then what has unfolded since then. It has been sort of dizzying. It shows how quickly things can change in life and in foreign policy. And quickly. Well, uh, an, a duo from the New York Times termed last Friday's meetings, uh, quote, surprisingly public and surprisingly profound. So why don't you break down for us the major players? Everybody, take it down. Take these notes down here. Moon Jae-in, North of uh, South Korea. Kim Jong from uh, North Korea. Xi Jinping from China. Shinzo Abe of Japan, and of course our man in the White House. Uh, if you'll tell us um, who had the larger roles, who's got the bigger levers. Who's playing? I, I, I'm looking at this like some of them are playing Go, and then there's one guy playing a game of cards, Fish. Well, this is a question many people have asked, and to what extent does Donald Trump uh, deserve a lot of credit for this? I guess I would say some, if you talk about you know somebody who sort of breaks the game board that was being played, and then everybody else has to come and you know fix it up. So in, in many ways, he does. The, the rhetoric of last year and the, the tough talk, uh, really scaring people. The sanctions, I think, have, have certainly had an effect. But my message here would be that the almost all of the credit has to go to Moon Jae-in, the new president of South Korea, who was elected last May, who has a very conciliatory approach to North Korea. Uh, he is from the progressive left, I guess you would call it in, in our American terms. Uh, he has really preached the idea that the best way to deal with North Korea is to go back to what North, uh, South Korea did in the 1990s, known as the Sunshine Policy. He's not calling it that, but it's the same idea. It's the idea that the best way to do it is to have better relations, not antagonism. And the best way to get the North Koreans to change um, is to, to follow that. And you, in preparation for this, you mentioned something about it. It matters who's in, and you you gave us the the term for the the house, the um, in the blue house, the blue house. And I'm thinking, the less bandwidth you have to devote to your corruption case, the more you have to devote to diplomacy. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> that helped. Yes, it does. Uh, you know, though, that South Korean politics can be incredibly corrupt. Uh, the, the and his time may come. His shoe has uh, to drop, who, too. Who knows? You know, they have okay. a habit of the new person coming in sort of prosecutes the one going out, and that's a, a, not a good uh, pattern to have. But in any case, uh, let me go back to the 1990s. Okay. And uh, his name was Kim Dae-jung. He was the Nobel Peace Prize democracy advocate. He became prime minister and, as I mentioned, uh, uh, began the Sunshine Policy. That was the time, the one time, that North Korea was acting in a conciliatory way. It was a period of optimism because Bill Clinton was on board as well. Had Bill Clinton uh, behaved himself and then <laughs> Al Gore had been elected, I'm pretty sure that uh, North Korea and South Korea would be in a much better position today. But what happened, of course, is that Bush was elected and Bush decided to walk away from the uh, negotiations for different reasons. So now, since then, South Korea, uh, since actually 2006, has been ruled by a right-wing leaders who have had a very antagonistic approach to North Korea. Uh, and then you have Kim, Kim Jong-un, the current leader, taking power in 20, uh, 2012. So all those things, I think, uh, coalesce to a very tense situation. And I think what you have now is Mr. Moon, again, coming back in since last May and trying to choose a different way forward with North Korea. So, again, if anybody deserves the Nobel Peace Prize, it's going to be Moon Jae-in. Well, I, I guess I don't want to use that metric alone. And <laughs> I, I was very persuaded listening to uh, on a sister platform on background briefing, I would say, because I get so much from uh, what... Ian Masters provides a discussion about how though much China's got all they they've got hard power in their cards in their hand and that their the supply chain and that they have every need for there to be a North Korea that that there is no unification so 
they have a huge border along North Korea, so that uh, there is there's I guess two schools about where there is more influence wielded in getting us to where we are in May 1, 2018. I think uh, China has what you might call veto power over policy that's going to happen in, in North Korea. And uh, it has almost nothing to do with economics or the supply chain you mentioned. It is entirely strategic. And that is, China does not want a unified Korean peninsula, which because they know it is going to be South Korea that's going to unify North Korea is just too weak. So they want to avoid a collapse scenario. And they want to avoid the United States then being the major power in the region right on their border. So they want to prop North Korea up. Uh, you, you could call it a buffer state, and I think that's the term that's used. Uh, so they also, though, aren't really close to Kim Jong-un. Uh, they, in fact, have been prodding him to open up economically. Uh, you mentioned the development model, which uh, China has done since 1978 which calls for exporting, having more interaction with the international economy. North Korea has been so far steadfastly opposed to that. And it is the, the one ray wow. of hope that I have is that maybe North Korea is changing its position on that. But this is that we can talk about that in, in a moment. China today, Xi Jinping, the, the president, feels bypassed. And so I think what's going on now is really wow. a trilateral South-North-U.S. Uh, dynamic. Whatever comes from that, uh, China then will be heavily involved in implementing anything that happens. Well, is it, it's not that China is less powerful. It's just they're dealing in a more complicated dynamic. Yes, you can put put it that way. But also, you know, just, again, since February, so much has changed. And it is the north-south dynamic that is driving things, I believe. Okay. The U.S. in the background holding that, you know, the threat of, of taking terrible action. But also now with Donald Trump agreeing to meet, possibly being part of a solution going forward. And again, you can hear the skepticism in my voice. Yes. Uh, but we have the possibility. And if we play our cards right, if Donald Trump plays cards right, then I think we actually have a chance of moving forward in a much more positive way. Again, my skepticism is I'm not sure what game <laughs> Donald Trump is going to play and whether the upcoming summit is going to be fruitful or not. Well, that's what we're going to have you break it down uh, the uh, in terms of the shorter, the middle, and the, the longer term. So um, I one thing that really fascinated the heck out of me was all the forensic work that analysts who are never privy to an unscripted Kim Jong-un, and they had a chance to see this figurehead that's been so highly scripted in his appearances outside of North Korea. What kinds of things, I'm not just talking about the cute, the, ho the whole optics, but what what did you yourself or the analyst that you, uh, that you put a lot of stock in, did you take away from how he comported himself and including a few sort of open moments with the Western media, with Western press? I always tell my students that uh, so-called Korean experts are all guessing. And uh, by the way, I don't uh, call myself a Korean expert, even though I, I do study this. Um, East, East Asian expert. Yeah, that right. includes Korea. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, the people who really study North Korea, they know so much. They have educated guesses. But as you just said, the actual concrete knowledge is so limited. Uh, and so, again, it is sort of educated guessing. Um, People were, uh, experts, uh, were surprised at the way he comported himself. Uh, it actually goes back to when he first came into power, the optimistic view that many had that he would be more conciliatory, he would be more sort of, you know, internationalized. As you probably know, he uh, spent a number of his uh, teenage years being educated in Switzerland. Uh, he has much of an... Right, it, right. We thought he was going to have a more international outlook. And then when he came into power, uh, you know, he was, he went the exact opposite way, as you just said, closed down completely, very secretive, very antagonistic. Uh, and so people weren't sure uh, what to make of it. So the unscripted moment uh, when he was talking to, um, to Mr. Moon, I think revealed that, you know, he does have that personality. Uh, I think he is sort of, you know, again, on that personal level, he is open, et cetera. But I think the politics of North Korea mean that the extent to which he can actually denuclearize 
is, I think, almost zero. Uh, the extent to which that he can actually move forward with many of the promises he was making, I think, will be constrained, again, by internal politics in North Korea. For those of you who've just joined me, my guest this morning on Ask a Leader is Bob Uriu, UCI political science professor specializing in international relations and international political economy with expertise in East Asia and an emphasis on American foreign policy toward reexamining the intricacies of diplomacy underway on and about the Korean Peninsula. So uh, back uh, back to your point, and I just I, I just took that tour there that the charm offensive and and you're talking about how uh, Kim Jong Jong Un is is comporting himself. It's an effect of leverage that can s totally shuffle this this dynamic. I guess that's part. <clears throat> that's what could happen so fast mm -hmm. from February 8th to March 9th. Right. And in fact, that is the question everybody is trying to figure out. Right. What motivated him to make this change? And, you know, I do think that it has to do with the Olympics and the realization that they can get so much through a charm offensive, the prestige, the attention, everything that they've wanted. Charm offensive plus nuclear uh, weapons. Yes, that's right. That's so, huge. Uh, okay, but then the second thing I think is the economics. In other words, I think the sanctions, not just the Trump sanctions, but you know they've been uh, isolated for decades now. I think it does seem that there is an economic component to this as well. The message though is that, as you just said, the nuclear component really has not changed, and I think the extent to which we can expect real change is very limited. In other words, I think the problem is that Donald Trump, I think, is thinking of denuclearization. And it seems that he's considered, well, they said they're going to get rid of their program and get rid of their weapons. And if that's what Donald Trump is thinking he's going to achieve when he sits down with Kim, we will be he will be very disappointed because that is not what they're going for. What we could hope to achieve is actually going back to the agreed framework of the 1990s and Beijing Agreement of 2006, which is basically putting a cap on further development and step by step incrementally rolling things back. But because North Korea is so weak militarily, so weak economically, I think that the generals in North Korea will never give up the nuclear weapons because they see that as their only means of survival. Well, and they know all the other eight nations that have developed a nuclear weapon program, nobody's backtracking theirs, and so there's, there isn't any, there's no precedent for that, so why would they be the first and then become weak? And so I, I just have a very cheap moment, it's a cheap kind of witticism that I think could, uh, but it, it could be a an effective way that that our man in the White House could be played. If you know the iconic <laughs> picture of Kim Jong Kim Jong Un on the testing tarmac with that desk, the lamp, and the telephone. If you remember that picture, mm -hmm. so all he has to do is go roll that desk out. Same same props on there, but add one more prop mm -hmm. is Donald J. Trump's family, mm -hmm. a photograph on top of the desk. <laughs> and then okay. it's over. Uh, he wins the he wins the summit. Yeah, Kim Jong Un yeah, could possibly. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Uh, so then, um, so so Kim Jong Un has a sort of a historiography then on his side. He's really he's working this very deftly. Again, I, everybody's guessing, but that actually is my interpretation of this. Uh, that and he sees that he can gain so much more by doing this this way. I think he also has learned the lesson that everybody in Asia uh, has learned, and that is if you butter up Donald Trump, if you play to the ego and give him credit, then you're likely to get a much better deal. Um, and, I, and you probably saw uh, Mr. Moon in South Korea said he thought Donald Trump should get the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. I, I saw that as a statement of you know just making sure Donald Trump doesn't blow things up. And that, by the way, is the one thing that people are worried about. Again, as I was saying, you know, if Trump goes in thinking he's going to strike a deal, the deal doesn't come about, uh, that's one. Or if they strike some kind of deal in North Korea, hedges and doesn't fulfill backtracks, which I think is highly likely, then the U.S. losing patience and, you know, going back to what we were talking about last year, a much more forceful uh, reaction. You know that uh, Mr. Pompeo and Mr. Bolton 
uh, are now the main, uh, two of the three main uh, foreign policy advisors, and both are extremely hawkish on North Korea. Clear uh, records yes. for the over right. the decades. Yes, right. And so hardwired. That's right. So when they were coming in, you know, I think people were expecting, were bracing themselves for something major to happen. And then the opposite happened. It seems like we have a diplomatic solution in the hand. Again, this is why I'm really skeptical, because a lot of the underlying things have not changed. Well, since you were on in December, and the Mm. things started moving really fast after February 8th, Mm. I I still think it's really, really remarkable, even though it is the theater of the absurd is, Dennis Rodman, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Former NBA star and and uh, international eccentric is the only man on earth who's visited, personally had FaceTime with both Kim Jong-un and the man, our man in the White House. So, uh, I mean, that's a that's a weird opportunity. Is there anything there? Uh, I'm sorry, as in getting Dennis Rodman back it, no, uh, involved? or, or <laughs> Well, whether whether he has anything, I mean, whether that's something that uh, Pompeo and at all ought to sort of find out what they can, mine some of that data. Oh, I see. Uh, you know, I, I have a feeling when Dennis Rodman met Kim Jong-un, they weren't talking about nuclear issues. No, or, but, the, but so. it's how... It's it's like when mm-hmm. other heads of state, like Hillary Rodham Clinton, would talk mm-hmm. about her personal time with oh, Putin. Oh, I see the personal. You know, that's an interesting question. I don't know if the U.S. government, the CIA, or State Department interviewed uh, Dennis Rodman. You know, for that sort of well, insight. That's why I asked you. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's a good point. Maybe uh, maybe they did. Um, but as I said before, I think everybody. I think Donald Trump was taken by surprise at the the sudden change since February. So, right. Yeah, I'm not sure. So now what looms also with a lot of international analysts is that the impact of how Donald J. Trump deals with the Iran nuclear agreement, what that says about the integrity of the American commitment to any agreement. So what details, as that's unfolding with utter certainty, what does that cast over the summit in on the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, let me answer that in an indirect way. And That's that fine. is, we often, uh, always, when you read something about an agreement with North Korea, you will read North Korea does not hold up its end of the bargain, it will cheat, you know, it's done this many, many times. I think the North Koreans believe that about the Americans as well, and uh, sometimes about South Korea. Uh, in other words, there have been many times when we, the U.S., were not holding up our end of the bargains that we had struck. And more importantly, I think North Korea is just so fearful of the United States military power that uh, you know the idea that, uh, I think you saw Kim Jong-un said, well, if we have a peace treaty, and if the U.S. guarantees that it won't strike North Korea, we will denuclearize, right? And on the face of it, that seems like a great opportunity. But the North Koreans are just so fearful that, and I don't think trust Donald Trump any more than a lot of people do. And so the, even if the U.S. were to tell North Korea, all right, we promise not to use military action, that is not going to be nearly strong enough to make North Korea feel actually secure, which is why I was saying earlier the generals will just not ever give up the nuclear weapons completely. Well, I'm thinking we can also go back in terms of American uh, military involvement or partial or uh, other interventions that, that we, kn- we have reasonably. We understand that North Korean leadership looks at Syria, Iraq, and Libya and mm-hmm. sees what kind of destabilizing sort of outcomes have taken place Mm -hmm. after the American intervention of sliding scale militarization. Right. In fact, you probably saw that John Bolton said he thought the Libya model, that was his term, uh, was the best way to approach North Korea. Oh, that, now we we have to turn the doomsday clock up then. Yeah. On, on never, that but alone. you know, so some proponents are saying, well, what he meant was, you know, Libya was open and invited American inspectors in that kind of thing, right? But the North Koreans are hearing. I think what Bolton was really telegraphing there was a, a very hard line position, and the North Koreans certainly saw it. In other words, when Gaddafi gave up his program, and remember, he didn't have nuclear weapons. 
he only gave up the program, right? And then shortly after that, uh, he was toppled. And so uh, that is, of course, what Kim Jong-un is going to avoid at all costs. So. And which the Chinese, they're, and they're helping them try to avoid that. Well, that's interesting. That, you know, the Chinese, I think, would prefer a North Korea that is there and not nuclear. Static, yeah. Static, well, or, you know, as I was saying earlier, open internet uh, economically, you know, maybe even thriving, maybe even an economic partner. But the Chinese don't like it when North Korea is threatening, you know, war or launching missiles. In other words, my view of China is that they are still focused on economic development. Uh, they prefer stability. They're not, I don't see them as, you know, trying to control the region or trying to push the U.S. out. Uh, so I think their preference would be stability, economic interaction, and less co less conflict. So uh, you're you're dealing on such a high plane, and there I, I still, I just because it's community radio, I want to take one more liberty with the, how, though, uh, if, if we see our man in the White House, could, how easily I, I see a, a gesture could be playing him. I have a, get stuck with me for many years now since I, a, an American journalist spending, oh, I think maybe one week or so in North Korea. And he said there was a very odd thing he witnessed, observed in North Korea is that the women all were wearing the same color of lipstick. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, and we know that this is the first time that the optics that the North Koreans saw an in-color broadcast of their leader mm -hmm. out with these Western leaders. Mm -hmm. So we've got color mm -hmm. now on there. So we, we put on Melania Trump, that color of lipstick on her, and that image goes back to North Korea. <laughs> I mean, little things like that. Right. Wouldn't well, that be wild? Yes, but you know what? Those words that you just said, I think, would strike fear in a lot of North Korean leaders. In other words... But that's, I'm saying, that's Trump's biggest, that, well, an easy card to play. Oh, but then that would not be what would lead to something more cooperative and it's stable. It's too threatening. Yes. Because, destabilizing. Right, because what they're deathly afraid of at the moment is opening up. There are people seeing how far ahead North, uh, South Korea is, how developed China has become, you know, in just in 20 years. And then the people in North Korea demanding something like that. They would, the North Korean leaders would prefer to keep political control. You know, it is one of the most repressive regimes in the world. Uh, and they would prefer closure, but because they need economics. I, I they can, need it. Yeah, my view is that, you know, the charm offensive they're doing now is going to be tied with easing the sanctions, uh, with getting aid if possible. In other words, I think they've accomplished what they set out to do. They're going to keep their weapons, and they're going to be able to sort of break up this really hardline coalition against them, which is actually a, f well, in my view, it, it is an, an acceptable outcome. Right, and, and, accept and he's become a more acceptable leader in one month. Uh, y yes, but again, you know, the nature of in this government, yes, right, I, nothing really has changed, but if the bottom line is avoiding a nuclear confrontation, even war on the Korean Peninsula, which remember when I was here right. before, that was my main thing. It we were sweating so, it in here. Well, it would, be, it will be if it happens so deadly. It just, it would dwarf anything that we can even imagine. We're talking ten to twenty million, perhaps, uh, you know, it, in the worst case scenario. So if we've moved away from that, I guess I'm willing to give anybody credit if they want to take it. Uh, uh, it's a better outcome than uh, what we were talking about just six months ago. Well, I have a standing invitation, Bob, every time something of this import is developing that you have come back to the show. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today on Ask a Leader. Okay, thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Bob Uriu is my guest. He's UCI political science professor specializing in international relations and international political economy with expertise in Asia, talking about what's going down on the North, South, and Korean Peninsula. We'll be right back after a short station break with Neil Kelly returning for his ritual pre-primary election visit. Lots to cover. Voters, don't go away. We'll start out walking and learn to run. And 
to that was, she's K-pop in Australia, but there she is. She is Dami Im. She's from Australia, but uh, with the cover, we've only just begun. Thanks for staying tuned with Ask a Leader. My next guest, it's a pleasure always to have him on because he's generous with his time when he's busiest because he's the Orange County Registrar of Voters at the helm now there for 18 years. And despite his ritual appearances on the show, it's important to present his full bio for local voters to appreciate how much institutional heft Neil brings to running our election infrastructure. Prior to joining Orange County, Neil Kelly established several of his own companies, employing hundreds of people. He was also an adjunct professor with Riverside Community College's busy administration department and service as a police officer in Southern California during the mid-1980s. Neil is an appointed member of an immediate past chair of the United States Election Assistance Commission Board of Advisors and a member of the Election Assistance Commission Voting Systems Standards Board, a member of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, Technology and Voting Technical Guidelines Development Committee, the past president of the California Association of Clerks and Election Officials, and is the past president for the International Association of Government in Official government officials. In addition, he serves as a 2017-2018 member of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicines Committee on the Future of Voting. This partly because he does, folks, I'm reminding everybody, always makes the jaws drop that he administers the fifth largest county in the U.S. Neil earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Business and Management from the University of Redlands and an MBA from the University of Southern California. Neil comes to us from his corner office in Santa Ana. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Neil Kelly. Thank you, Claudia. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's go over and put into perspective some of the stats for where we are at this point with the Orange county-wide registration. The total number going into it, this is May Day. So, yes, we're, we are just uh, shy of 1.6 million voters. So um, we've, we've seen some increases over the last few months, which is fantastic. And uh, as we continue to do list maintenance, that kind of fluctuates, but just shy of 1.6 million. Well, I know in preparation uh, last week we talked about this. That was 1.5 million. So it, it's it's exactly what you were saying. The trend there is an uptick, we'll, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about those trends. So, um, and how is it looking on the at the precincts for UCI? We're going to try to hone most of what we're talking about today about the UCI. Uh, there are five different polling places, but uh, so but the registration in our various precincts, how is that trending at this point, May? Before well, it's good. So I, I don't have the specific numbers for you, but I can tell you that the, the, those specific precincts, we are seeing upticks, um, which is fantastic. The registration numbers continue to grow. Um, and I, I'm assuming we're going to get into a little bit about the triage issues. Oh, we will. We're going to yeah, get great. into the hardware for sure. Great, great. So... In, also in preparation, you were talking a little bit about some of the party registration shifting f- away from the the conventional parties to uh, no party preference, and that's certainly happening on the campus as well. Yeah, it definitely is. And, and in fact, we're seeing in the demographic of about 18 to 25, the largest shift to no party preference. Interestingly, in Orange County, uh, 24% of the total number of voters affiliate, well, don't affiliate with a party, so there are no party preference, and that mirrors the state average of 24%. So, and UCI, Cal State Fullerton, we're seeing a significant growth in those areas uh, moving over to NPP. And I, I just a, a moment to clarify, too. People are, and I noticed that in some of the things that Jackie Wu, hello, Jackie, shout out to her, uh, that some of the stats that she gave me, and that there, people are still checking the independent option, and uh, it, it's a moment we can just clarify, independent is actually a party, and so it's not an independence from any party. The, to, the way to express an independence of a party is to say no party preference. That's correct, and it's a great point. American independent is a qualified registered party in California. So then well, let's go into uh, the uh, the other big major education that I find still needs to, to be driven here is the 
California primary, I'm going to say it's going to be like a drinking game. June 5th, everybody, we're going to keep going back to June 5th, but we have other deadlines to talk about. But the top two primary in California still requires clarification for people who think they don't have to do anything until November. So, and that's a really good point because the primary election is is how we select individuals to move on to that final runoff in November. So, participating in June is really important because you might not get the individual that you want in that November runoff unless you participate. And um, what's unique about California's top two primary is is that it's wide open. So, it's an open primary, which means you can vote for any candidate that you want on the ballot, regardless of your party affiliation. And so for those that remember from the 2016 presidential primary, there were other regulations that pertain, but in this particular cycle. Midterms, The midterm. Like what people are taking right now in classes. (laughs) So with the midterms then, there is no requirement to be registered in any particular party to to participate in that party's primary. It's open to everybody. Not in California. That's right. Not, Not right for now. Okay, so... I've got my statewide voter information guide, and you mentioned in preparation for the interview that the the vote by mail, the absentee ballots have been moving out. Well, so voter information guides, our last mailing is today, so that's, that's that 8.5 by 11 pamphlet that voters will see in their mailbox. The actual ballots, we don't start mailing until May 7th. In fact, we can't under, under state law. Okay, that's next and, week. Right? Yeah, that's next week, and, and that total group of, of ballots will be about 900,000 that will go out in one day. 900,000. Yeah. Folks, it's a huge ballot. There are so many candidates on the federal and the state levels. And of course, there's lots of, we'll talk about too a little bit, the, the local candidates. But this is necessitating everybody being ready for your absentee ballot. You need 72 cents on your stamps. 71 cents. 71. Oh, I was off. Good grief. 71 cents. So if you go to a post office, they'll meter it. Uh, But, of course, you can put two two first-class stamps on it. Okay. But And... You were also saying in preparation that if somebody's got the postage due, so it, it still gets processed, but yeah. we're not, this is not an endorsement that we move the tab to you, but what, I mean, but is that, is that a liability for you? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a huge liability because I, the vast majority of voters do put the postage on, and that's a requirement by the post office. However, there is a fail-safe that if they forget or they do not put the correct amount of postage on, that could, that will advance to us. But an important caveat is that could delay your ballot arriving to us. So not something we recommend. But the and the ballots, the absentee ballots, it's the new law that they they must be canceled by the day and arrive of the day of the election, and they need to arrive within three days after. Within three days of election day, that's correct. Of election day, and that's that's pretty new. We've just that was in effect in 2016. Yes, it was. And in fact, so what's important about that is it means you could drop it in the mailbox on Election Day. In the past, you couldn't do that. Okay. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Neil Kelly, Orange County Registrar Voters, giving special attention to what's taking place in the polling places at USI's where we're headed there uh, and where special measures are being implemented in the lead up to the California state primary June 5th. June 5th, everybody. So deadlines. Let's make sure everybody's got down then by the when they need. It's May 29th is the last time to request an absentee ballot. Yes, that's correct. May the 29th. And then, of course, you talked about Election Day. Another important day to keep in mind is that the last day to register to vote is May 21st. However, exactly. Under new law in California, if you miss that deadline, you can still register to vote at our office or one of our early voting vote centers. And the office, I'll put in the summary, but folks, it's in the Santa Ana town, the county seat, of course, at 1300 South Grand Avenue, Building C, just behind, I guess, all of those solar paneled parking areas. That's right, right yeah. There. Then uh, other deadlines that we need to know, I think those are most of them. Yeah, no, that really covers it. I mean, in the past, obviously, the registration deadline was critical because if you missed it, you you had no options, but now you do. All right. So the California Voters' Choice Act in 2016, and you mentioned that a really terrific cyber 
security panel that was convened at the student union here at UCI about a month ago. And you were talking about that is meeting where the voters are. So that's you've made a big press to accommodate the confusion that's been sorted out at many, many elections here on the campus. So why don't you map out some of the new provisions so people know that, <laughs> I'm afraid we're, you're not infantilizing our students, but you are making sure that, they're, that they've dotted every I, you've crossed the, helped them cross the T's with whatever kind of ballot they've handed over on June 5th. Well, and that's the thing is I, I'm, we want to do our best to try and accommodate all voters, but certainly specific to UCI, you know, I, I know it can be confusing, especially depending on where you registered at UCI, it will put you into a specific precinct. So if you don't go to the correct polling place, normally you would have to, to cast a provisional ballot, which takes extra time, extra effort out of your day. And so what we're going to be doing is preparing triage centers uh, on campus that will help direct students to the right location, which will speed up their process in the voting booth and also alleviate the growth of provisional ballots. So all of those things combined will really make a better voter experience. So these triage center personnel from your registrar voters office, they have right. to like really be like the your best of your best and they can they can slice down because not not all polling work polling workers necessarily have this expertise. It's been a problem in the past. Yeah, we're, we're providing specialized training for these folks. They'll be stationed outside of every polling place so they can talk to students as soon as they walk up and sort out those issues before they get into the polling place uh, location. And that should really help out. And before then, they're at the triage center, everybody, and actually, Neil, I always put this in everyday conversation, people I know, people I don't know, that you can verify your voter registration status, folks, go to, in the case of Orange County, go to the ocvote.com to verify that you're there. And, uh, and I, it's also, there's a terrific status symbol waiting for those who have not missed a single election. You get your whole voting record. That's way cool to look at. Yeah. Right. So, so anyway, that's important to do so you know where you are with the voting and get and you do it ahead of time so that you're you're ready with the right paper and and we who knows how long those triage center lines are going to be how much it's going to t require to get all that taken care of yeah and i can, if i could just add claudia you yes. know ocvote.com forward slash verify will take you right to that page so it's very simple very simple go straight to there so let's talk about around for uci as well as around the county all of the early voting opportunities here in orange county Yes, so we're going to have five, I don't want to say permanent, but they'll be permanent for 11 days locations in Costa Mesa, Fullerton, the Irvine Civic Center in Irvine, in Mission Viejo, and then as well as our office here. And also what's pretty exciting for us is we'll be doing pop-up voting. Yes. Um, it's like a mobile cafe for voting. And we'll be at UCI at uh, Aldrich Hall on May 29th from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. So you can, it doesn't matter what precinct you're in, you can go there to that pop-up voting location and cast a regular ballot. A regular ballot. And, mm -hmm. well, I guess I'm kind of curious. So that, would that be already tabulated once those, do they, they shoot over to your office? And th that, that will become some of like the early results then when we're watching? Yes. In fact, those will be included with the vote-by-mail return. So all of that early voting that's done before Election Day is one of the first ballots counted. So for the pop-up voting... That's a concession to, to get students on board and get them engaged in that kind of thing. So is this a trial balloon for any other institutions around the county, Neil? Well, we, we're excited because we just made a deal with Seegerstrom for having a night out at Hamilton. So we'll be at a pop-up voting unit there. Really? We, what date? Yep, and that's going to be at Seegerstrom on May the 26th. And then we'll be at the Santa Ana Civic Center, uh, downtown Santa Ana. And there's lots more locations we'll be announcing here in the next few days. So that's also, so what forward slash after ocvote.com are we going to find that? Thanks for asking that. It's early. Forward slash early. Oh, that's, you're making it easy for us. <laughs> yeah, that's why Neil Kelly is the gold standard, ladies and gentlemen, on, on managing this. Well, let's talk a little bit about, well, a lot, actually, ways that Orange County is exploring 
the vulnerabilities mm -hmm. in election infrastructure, the hacking protections that are in place to the extent you can give us some of those sort of details. Well, you know, and I could tell you this goes back to 2016. Uh, there's clear evidence. This is, I'm not telling your, your listeners anything that's classified. There was attempts made by nation states to infiltrate our election systems here in the United States. We have been working closely with Homeland Security and the FBI since that time. Wow. And we've done a lot to stand up additional defenses to not only our network structure, but to the physical uh, aspects of our operation. That includes the building, the chain of custody of ballots, you know, you name it. I mean, really before 2016, election security was top of mind, but there was this paradigm shift that occurred in 2016, which really elevated and escalated the issues surrounding election security. So I will tell you that from a software standpoint, a network standpoint, there are protections in place that were not prior to 2016 that are extremely enhanced, including intrusion detection. And then on the physical side, we've done quite a bit that I'm not at liberty to talk about, but um, I will tell you that the security that's in place is very robust. So I guess what I got my mind blown at the, the cyber security panel that you participate on, I mean, there's to the extent you can say that there there are so many junctures where this intrusion can occur. There are. There are a number of vulnerabilities, I think. And this is the case, Claudia, for any, you know, system that yeah. is that is on a network. And by the way, our voting system is not. I mean, we're talking just about voter registration for a second. So when you look at banking, retail, you know, service sectors, all of those, and you see them in the news quite a bit about the vulnerabilities and, and the attacks on those systems. Yes. So being diligent on, on that is, is extremely important. We cannot protect against every attack, but what we can do is limit the risk. And what we can do is to add additional protections to increase the confidence for voters, but to also react quickly if there is an attack. So those are what's really important and, and should be top of mind. And it makes it complicated that there are, you, you quoted for me last week, the number that's like 3,000 and how many counties? that are running these elections in the country. Right. So there are 3,000 counties, but there are 9,000 election jurisdictions in the country. So you've got a number of disparate systems throughout the United States, and that creates a very difficult web to protect. But I think Homeland Security is, you know, is off to a good start and doing a good job. Well, in the weeds a little bit, so the, the number boosts from 3,000 to 9,000 because like we're including secretaries of state and all those and, kinds of things? And cities and municipalities that are their own election jurisdiction within a county. Oh, wow. Yeah. So but the, but the 3,000 counties, I mean, there's 3,000 orange counties, if you will, uh, throughout the United States. So I guess because you are on the top of that heap with administering and looking for opportunities to, to secure these systems, that that sheer number of jurisdictions is an opportunity for hacking, that somebody can do a little trial on, you know, county A over here or municipality B over there, see what works. That's why it's really important to be diligent, but also I want to add that auditing is, is I think, something that's extremely yes. important. You can do all the protections in, in the world, but unless you have some sort of a paper record that you can go back and audit, it makes it very difficult to prove who that winner of the contest should, should truly be. And in California, and in particular here in Orange County, we have that. Right. And we're going to be doing additional auditing in June to ensure that the system works correctly. And it's not so much what you're doing in the auditing, but I, I guess I wanted to make sure we included, too, how the voters themselves can be a part of this. Is that The Orange County Ballot Express that includes the capacity for the, us to track our envelopes. That's really important. So we've, we have implemented new technology for 2018, and this will enable a voter to essentially see, have visibility on their ballot from the moment it's printed inserted, mailed, and returned to us, and then to see how it was adjudicated. Was it counted? And if it wasn't counted, why wasn't it counted? And all of that will be, uh, I'm going to give you another forward slash at ocvote.com forward slash track, T-R-A-C-K, and a voter can see that full visibility just like a FedEx package. All right. Okay. Well, and I want to give you an opportunity. You can plug that voters can go to the ocvote.com for all of these things, and they can also, for, uh, for poll working, 
-hmm. they can go there. And I'm very intrigued by your fanning out with the message about the importance in your estimation as well in poll monitoring. That was like another new thing for me to consider. Yeah, I think I mentioned this before, but yes. I, I'm not sure all my colleagues agree, agree with me on this issue. But um, I think it's it's very important for individuals in the community to get out there and monitor the polls because they are a second set of eyes for us. Keep in mind that in Orange County, we use 10,000 volunteers spanned out across the entire county. This truly is a community event, but voting and the way we're voting today is the same way we were, we've been voting since about eight, the 1860s in this country when communities were much smaller so now it's really important to have these extra set of eyes and it's it's just it's good security and good protocol to have uh, monitors out there in the polls well this is the part of the the program where i always say neil here's glass raised here's to 100% voter participation sure. I want to thank you so much for taking the time that you don't have in this busy run-up to the June 5th primary. Thank you so much, Neil Kelly, for being on the show today. Well, thank you. We value UCI's partnership, and I'll take any time uh, down the road you need. Okay. Thank you so much. That was Neil Kelly, uh, Orange County Registrar of Voters, giving special attention to what's taking place in the polling places at UCI, where special measures are being implemented going to just close off the show with one announcement hosting today and tomorrow if you're listening live uh, UCI is hosting the whim cycle bike event at the Aldrich flag post that's today and tomorrow 10 till 2 you can go to the bike.uci.edu forward slash events forward slash whim cycle that therefore was my wrap today. Next week, I'll have on Bill Jacobs, City of Irvine Principal Planner with the general plan that got a little more exciting with a few more eyeballs on a particular parcel that's near the Great Park. Then I'll have Steve Allison accompanied by his uh, some two graduate students, Samantha Lay and Kendra Walters, about an important UCI Climate Solutions Summit they're organizing, presenting their research at UCI's Beckman Center. I'm going to be at the California GOP convention in San Diego this weekend. Maybe I'll bring some invitations to them. Uh, engrave, maybe. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Michelle Wolf. Drinks later. <laughs>